Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, Cowdy Radio. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. On tonight's program, the intergenerational epidemic, murdered and missing indigenous women and girls. We'll hear from one of the main researchers of a brand new report and our continuing mini-series on the 25th anniversary of the Chiapas Uprising. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone Approximately 71% of all indigenous peoples live within urban metropolitan areas within the politically defined borders of the United States. In terms of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls within urban environments, that data and information has been largely lacking. In late of 2018, the Seattle-based Urban Indian Health Institute published a brand new report titled Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. They looked at the number of indigenous missing women and girls in 71 selected urban metropolitan areas. According to the National Crime Information Center, in 2016, there were approximately 5,712 reports of missing American Indian and Alaska women and girls. Though the U.S. Department of Justice's missing database, NAMUS, only logged 116 cases. The U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention has also reported that murder is the third leading cause of death among American Indian and Alaska Native women, and that rates of violence within Indian country can be up to 10 times higher than the national average. Our guest for the first segment of tonight's show is one of the principal researchers on this brand new report titled Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, published by the Urban Indian Health Institute. Anita Lucchese is a doctoral student at Alberta's University of Lethbridge, one of the principal researchers on this brand new report, and from the Cheyenne Nation. She joins us to discuss Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Within the Urban Environment. So the purpose of the report was to create a shift in the narrative to ensure that our sisters who are going missing and being killed in urban areas uh, were included. Because at that point, it felt like so much of the discussion on this issue focused on reservations. And of course, this violence does happen on reservations, and it is important that we talk about that. But it's also important that we talk about what happens to our urban women because the data shows that it's not just a matter of jurisdiction, it's a matter of police negligence and racism, um, regardless of location, whether it's reservations or in cities. And so we really wanted to make sure that those cases were included, especially because at the time, Savannah's Act did not include urban cases, and we felt that that was particularly egregious. 
So, you know, and, and in terms of the significance, I think for me, putting together the data and writing the rough draft of the report, I mean, I was, I had it sprawled out all over my bed and I was sitting there till, you know, working till five in the morning for like four nights in a row. And um, at the time I thought, well, this is either going to be huge or I'm crazy and nobody's going to read it. And it's just all in my head. And I think it's bigger than it is because I worked on it for a year. Uh, I really wasn't sure. I felt this big sense of power from these women and their stories. And I felt, you know, some of these statistics are really jarring, especially when it comes to how law enforcement respond or don't respond to inquiries about this issue um, and to cases as they occur. So I certainly felt that the report would be really significant, but I wasn't sure Really, until the day we launched the report and released it to the community, you know, none of us really knew what to expect. But I do feel very grateful and very honored and humbled that something that's been useful to people, because that's the entire spirit behind not just this project, but the larger database, which I've been doing independently for the last four years, was to create information that was useful to our communities and working to advocate for our women and protect them. It's so important with the work that you've done so far and you're continuing to do, because I think uh, when we talk about statistics, you know, people forget, you know, for example, the Native American population compared to the American population and how marginalized and how small we are in numbers. And then when you look at the number of Native Americans that live in urban environments, I believe the report stated 71% of Native Americans live in urban environments. And then out of the urban Native American population, a little over half that population is indigenous uh, women and girls. And, uh, and so the work that you've done is critical. And I was wondering, you know, has this kind of research uh, been conducted before? And talk about some of those statistical highlights, if you will. Well, I can say I don't think any research has been done like this before, not just because we were collecting information that law enforcement agencies never really thought to track, but also, you know, there had never been a a report on statistical information on missing and murdered Indigenous women here in the United States. Um, There have been several wonderful reports that have come out of Canada, but uh, nothing that included our, our sisters here under occupation in the United States. And beyond that, I think the model that we used to collect the data was also uh, the first of its kind because we did data collection by any means necessary. You know, so because we used all of the official data, but we also moved beyond that to include direct contact with families in the community um, and social media posts and archives from newspapers, we really went the extra mile to make sure as many cases as we could were included. And those are things that law enforcement agencies or government agencies just don't have the the willpower to do. So I think, you know, what sets this report out the most is just that it's a labor of love, pure love for our sisters. And, um, you know, in terms of the statistics, I think it's been challenging for me because I'm sure, as everyone knows, these statistics change every day. So already the data that we published in November is no longer accurate because more cases have occurred since then. And here in, in Northern California, here in the Bay Area, the first homicide of the year in San Francisco was a Yaqui woman who was murdered trying to protect another woman. So 
I think whatever statistics we look at, while they are powerful, I think it's important to remember that every day is an opportunity to do something in this movement. Every day, those statistics change and not in a good way. They change because more women like our Yaki sister are included. And there are more than statistics like what you're saying, right? There are sisters, there are nieces, there are girlfriends, there are cousins, there are relations, there are mothers, there are grandmothers. I saw um, an incident of an 84-year-old indigenous woman uh, in the report. And, and so these are our relations. And, and I was wondering, um, in reading the report, you encountered all kinds of um, obstacles and just flaws with how the state tracks or doesn't track, if you will, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And I was wondering if you could touch on that a bit. Sure. There are really all sorts of bureaucratic cracks that our women and girls are, you know, not just allowed to fall through, but sometimes actively pushed through. And uh, it was really frustrating to discover no matter where, you know, no matter what city, no matter what region, um, no matter what state, there was always examples of, you know, law enforcement just not doing best practices, things that seem basic. So, for example, there are still large law enforcement agencies in this country that don't even track victim race at all even though most police departments have been doing that since the late 90s or early 2000s. Other agencies default to white in the system. So, for example, Fargo Police, even though Fargo has been the epicenter or one of the epicenters of discussion of this violence because of Savannah's high-profile case, Fargo Police, they still default to white in the system. So if the officer just doesn't feel like checking a box, you know, didn't ask a question, um, is feeling hurried or uh, just doesn't feel like doing it, that means that that person is automatically going to be listed as white in the system. That's not right. That seems basic. That doesn't mean any cultural competency training. That's just due diligence. But what we were finding all across the country were issues just like that. In the report, I know Billings, Montana is mentioned as a problematic um area, if you will, in terms of the state and uh, its capacity or lack of capacity for record keeping. But also the, uh, what I found was interesting, too, just geographically in close proximity to where we're broadcasting, is your experiences with the Los Angeles uh, Police Department. And I was wondering if you could touch on that a little bit. It was definitely a challenge to get data from them. Uh, we did finally, but uh, it came after the publication of the report. Um, it was a couple weeks ago. Um, and the process with them was really um, frustrating and I think emblematic of lots of the issues with the way that law enforcement records are handled. So we had filed a request with them and we waited about eight months and never got a response. So I filed another one. And then at that point, a few more months went by, didn't hear anything. So I continued to follow up on that second request. And finally, we were able to talk to some folks who work in the records department there. And they had explained that there was um, thousands of cases, a huge backlog. And then the department laid off a bunch of their record staff. So they had three staff members responsible for this backlog of thousands of requests. And the department decided the best thing to do would be to just delete all those requests and not tell any any of the requesting agencies um, that they had done that. Um, and that, so that's what had happened to our initial request. 
And then the second one also got lost in the system because those staff members were so overworked and overwhelmed and, you know, had seen a bunch of their peers laid off and were stressed and had, again, had a huge backlog. Um, There should be more than three staff members to handle records requests for the entire city of L.A. That just seems absurd. Uh, And notably, all of those staff were women of color. And so I think it became clear that the person we talked to was genuinely wanting to be helpful, genuinely wanting to um, help us understand this violence as it occurs in L.A. But she, um, you know, they were just swamped um, and it was really an abusive work situation for them. And so I think that just goes to show you know, law enforcement agencies need, you know, we talk so much about funding for militarizing our, our law enforcement. And another, I hate to make Fargo an example twice, but, um, you know, they were in the news last year for putting AR rifles in every public school. You know, if we have money for that, we have money for someone to man- to manage those records in a good way. Anita, I know you spoke this past weekend at an event organized by Jordan Daniels of Rising Hearts Coalition and Cheyenne Phoenix. And the event was for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls at the Eastside Cafe in L.A. And one of the questions that was asked was uh, your experiences in terms of data collection with coroners. And I was wondering if you could, for our listeners, uh, talk about that in greater detail. The challenge with coroners is that it's an elected position. So that doesn't necessarily mean that that person is qualified to make the decisions that they're asked to make. And that's especially the case in rural areas where there maybe aren't as many folks who have been to medical school um, and have that training. And so what that means is that there's many unidentified Native people who have been murdered who are not properly identified because they're listed as white or Asian or Hispanic in the system because coroners aren't trained on how to identify Indigenous people properly. And you're listening to an exclusive interview with Anita Lucchese from the Southern Cheyenne Nation. She is the principal researcher on a newly published report titled Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. The report is the first ever published on missing and murdered Indigenous women in the urban metropolitan areas in the history of the United States. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio, and now back to the interview. Were there any other um, state or county agencies that you found that were equally problematic? And if so, what were they? You know, outside the scope of this report, part of what we've been doing at the database is trying to be really thorough in filing requests with every state law enforcement agency. Um, And now we're moving on to county sheriffs. One of the states where we had a lot of trouble was Nebraska. Um, So the state patrol... Uh, denied our request and then really tried to reword it in a way that would suit them. Um, they denied it again. And I wrote an appeal to the state attorney general's office and that was declined and rejected as well. So at this point, you know, there's nothing for us to do. That was our only method of appeal. So 
that's really frustrating, especially because there's now, you know, work happening in Nebraska around this issue and trying to, you know, similar to Washington, implement a bill that would, you know, call for attention and collecting data, but it empowers the state patrol to do that. And the state patrol just demonstrated they don't care. So definitely frustrating. I know uh, in the report and, and like you stated already, you know, all the figures are antiquated at this point, even just within the two months of the November 2018 publication date. But in the report, it stated there were 506 mur- uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women cases identified in selected 71 urban metropolitan areas, 128 were cases of murder of missing indigenous women, 280 cases of murdered indigenous women, 98 cases with unknown status, and then 29 was the median age of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls uh, victims. And I was wondering, who are the perpetrators in this case? And are there any geographical regions that you found that the problem exists worse than, say, other areas? Well, in terms of the perpetrators, we did try to track race and gender of the perpetrator as well as their relationship to the victim. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that information is really difficult to find Mm -hmm. um, because so many of these cases aren't covered by media in a good way um, or even at all. And because law enforcement make it so difficult to access that kind of information, what we had was very limited. And we did include what we had in the report. Um, So, for example, we found that about half of the perpetrators were Mm non-Native. I would suspect that that number is actually probably higher, but we're only able to, you know, base that statistic based on the information that's available. And we know media is biased and law enforcement are biased in terms of uh, representing Native men as uh, violent um, and criminalizing them and versus holding uh, non-Native, particularly white men, accountable. So we understand that um, that data is, still needs some work, and um, we're working on filling it in. So uh, Geographically, did you find any areas that were worse than, say, other areas, or is it pretty much uniform across all urban metropolitan areas? Well, no, there's some cities that have a much higher number of cases than others. So Seattle had the highest number total, which I think surprised a lot of people because we imagine Seattle as this very um, liberal, multicultural, diverse space that has a long history of being, you know, kind of at the forefront of lots of different social movements. And so I think what that data shows is that different people have entirely different experiences of Seattle. So while some go and they experience, you know, the diverse nature of it, um, all of the different beautiful things to see. I mean, Seattle is a beautiful city. I have family that lives there and there quite a bit. But for Native women, there's an entirely different experience that's rooted in a deep unsafety. And, uh, you know, we see that in other areas as well. So, for example, Albuquerque was very prominent. Salt Lake City, uh, Billings, even um you know, here in California, San Francisco and Sacramento were very highly represented, which, again, I think surprised a lot of people, not just because, you know, San Francisco, like Seattle, is known to be liberal, but also because people don't imagine San Francisco to even have a large Native population. And of course it does, and it has for decades. But we're so erased from the narrative 
people don't even realize we're here, much less that we're dying at such horrible rates. Would it be fair to characterize that there's a, a correlation or a relationship between the U.S. government's uh, relocation program from 1948 to 1973 to certain metropolitan areas that had a BIA relocation field offices to the findings of your research? I think that's certainly a contributing factor. I think also, you know, many of those cities are places where people go looking for opportunity, whether that's, um, you know, to seek out an education or a career, you know, those are cities that are uh, kind of hubs for people in trying to find a home away from home. You talked about the media, and for me, it, um, it always seems like when it comes to indigenous peoples, there's a lack of quality, frequency, and proportionality of, of media coverage, and, and you almost never see anything in any type of news story about the historical conditions that created the contemporary situation. And, you know, like what you mentioned before, just kind of the gross um, distortions of uh, representing indigenous peoples, regardless of, of the issues. And I was wondering if you could, I know in the report you talked about the media, and I was wondering for our listeners if maybe you can uh, unpack that a little bit more. Well, what we did was a survey, not just of what cases are covered by the media and which news outlets are um, you know, doing a good job or a bad job of that, but also how those cases are represented. Because the small fraction of cases that ever actually make it to media, quite a few of them um, have all sorts of violent or offensive language. And what I mean by violent language is language that um, dehumanizes the victim um, and engages in racial stereotypes. So, for example, it's very common to see news articles criminalize the victim, even though it had nothing to do with their case with criminal history from five years ago, because somehow that's relevant, even though it's not. Or they will list someone as a sex worker when it had nothing to do with their case. You know, those are stereotypes of Native people that um, really are lead us to blame the victim rather than the perpetrator and the colonial society that taught them to engage in that violence. I know this is not, um, you know, just an academic exercise for you, and it's just not um, a task required or asked of you for on behalf of the Urban Indian Health Institute of Seattle, Washington. And if I can ask, uh, what started you on this journey? Well, I'm a survivor of violence myself that almost killed me, so I was almost one of the women on this list. So uh, it's very personal to me. And really, uh, this project grew out of a larger database project, which, uh, again, is something I've done independently for the last four years. And that started with me just as a concerned community member um, and as a survivor that was deeply upset that if that had happened to me, that my story wasn't going to be counted and wasn't going to be, you know, mobilized to make sure that that didn't happen to other women and girls. For listeners, uh, wherever they are in, in hearing our conversation, what would you like for them to do? What should they be doing? I think it's important to hold our law enforcement accountable no matter where we are. So um, not just accountable to provide information to the community in a timely manner, but also um, to have 
an action plan of how to move forward and how to make things better, how to um, respond to these cases in a better way, how to make sure the information gets to the people who need it, and how to work to ultimately, you know, lower the rates of this violence. And that's going to look different, you know, based on each jurisdiction, because, you know, not every community is the same. But that's something that I would, you know, really encourage on a local or grassroots level is to go to your law enforcement and say, how do we do better for our women? And in terms of the report, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, a snapshot of data from 71 urban cities in the United States, Based on everything that you've learned so far, even up to the time of this interview, what does that mean in terms of Indigenous people and their respective First Nations future, given how systemic this problem is and where we are today and the lack of colonial response of these systemic and atrocious and heinous uh, uh, situation? What does that mean for Indigenous peoples uh, future if things remain unchanged? Well, you know, I'm I'm an optimist, and doing this work is um, this work is deeply spiritual. And you know, I I will say, and this is how I explain the work with the database in general is that these women they have so much power, and uh, they have work to get done. They have things they're trying to do for us um, and our peoples, and. Uh, you know, I'm just one of their helpers. Um, and so when I look at the things that they make happen um, and when I feel the power that they have, it gives me a tremendous sense of hope for the future because regardless of the continued violence that we experience, you know, regardless of the lack of interest or care by colonial governments, our people are getting stronger every day and we're banding together in bigger numbers every day. And um, our women are mobilizing in exciting ways every day. And so I think, you know, the future for Indigenous people looks bright because we're coming together in these ways in spite of the violence. And if folks want to get a hold of the report and and perhaps uh, reach out to you, do you have a website or any contact information you'd like to provide for listeners? The report is available on the Urban Indian Health Institute's website, which is uihi.org. And then I'm available at uh, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Database. If you uh, look for that on Facebook or Google it online, um, you'll find it. You'll find me. And that was Anita Lucchese from the Cheyenne Nation, principal researcher on the newly published report, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls by the Urban Indian Institute based out of Seattle, Washington. We're going to transition into solutions provided at the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's panel discussion, The Epidemic, The Stories and Solutions, held at the Eastside Cafe in Los Angeles, California, on January 12th of 2019. The event was organized by Cheyenne Phoenix and Jordan Marie Daniel of Rising Hearts Coalition. This is Jordan Marie Daniel from the Lakota Nation on solutions regarding missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Um, So now we're going to move into the solutions. You know, it, it's really going to take all of us to elevate this issue in, into the spotlight and to really get justice. And we can't rely on the government. We have to hold them accountable. We have to keep showing up, keep being a voice, keep talking about it, 
have to keep organizing and we're hoping um, leaving here tonight and going forward we're hoping we can keep doing this more uh, maybe eventually um, so to speak create a task force maybe getting a group and showing up to LAPD and demanding you know answers and this is something that needs to be happening across the country and because this is an epidemic and the numbers are growing and there are even more numbers that we don't even know about um, these women, these people, our relatives deserve that justice. And there are small steps being made in progress in, in getting that justice and that healing for the communities and the families. One of them, for example, is Savannah's Act. Um, that was introduced by S former Senator Heidi Heitkamp in October of 2017. Um, Sadly, it was blocked unilaterally by Representative Bob Goodlatte. I had a great time visiting home um, in December because my parents live in his district, so I bird-dogged all three, three of his offices, um, really trying to be a pain in the butt to him and demanding answers. And he completely ignored our calls. He sent someone, uh, one of his staff, to show up to talk to us, and she didn't even know really anything to say, and I think she was just showing up to make it look good. Um, but really, Savannah's Act is holding the government accountable by requiring them to provide annual reporting on missing and murdered indigenous cases. Um, and it's also updating the online federal databases in the Department of Justice to, to start solving these cases. And it's going to also implement and develop protocols and policies to get law enforcement and all agencies involved in solving these cases and working together collaboratively and making sure that communication is there. Um, but you know, on December 6th, Senate passed it unanimously by voice vote. It went to the House, then it was blocked by one person. One person, and to me, that's just not even, a, like, the democratic process. Like, for one person to block it, like, let it come to a full vote, and you can be the one that votes against it, but, like, don't, don't be a jerk. And uh, so, you know, with the new Congress, there's Senator John Tester and Steve Daines and um, Senator Lisa Murkowski who have all verbally vowed saying that they're gonna reintroduce Savannah's act and get it back onto the floor and get it to vote. And with this new Democratic uh, wave in, in Congress uh, and two Native women serving as House of Representatives, I know it's gonna get passed and we're gonna start seeing progress moving forward. Because already them two being there, they are already saying so much and speaking up for Indian country. So I'm so proud that, you know, we as indigenous peoples have them speaking up for us um, and that our voices won't be, you know, ignored. And so that is one solution, moving in the right direction and getting justice and, and providing healing for the families and communities. Another one, sadly, that, you know, because of the whole budget issue and the federal government shutdown, um, Violence Against Women Act. That was set to be reauthorized on September 30th, but because of the, I don't know, the um, Supreme Court hearings with uh, Kavanaugh, that got overshadowed. Like, you didn't, you couldn't hear about VAWA. It was, everything was about Kavanaugh. And what's interesting is that I think there are 13 um, senators who voted for Kavanaugh are the same 13 that voted against VAWA 2013 um, reauthorization. And so that's just, disgusting behavior to me, um, especially people who are leading this country and supposed to be representing their constituents, representing the people. Um, and so you kind of see where their moral compass lies by um, saying that they want to protect women, uh, that they're voting for a man who did not 
treat a woman well and who publicly tried to shame her. Um, and so the Violence Against Women Act is another stepping stone um, moving forward in, in ending the violence against women. Um, and it wasn't until thir 2013 where uh, VAWA, SDVCJ, the Special Domestic Criminal Jurisdiction pilot project where now 18 tribes are now implementing tribal VAWA, um, you know, that's a huge step. The fact that this didn't happen until like 2013, that, which is only five, six years ago, like that's like, come on. We've been here for time immemorial and we're now just getting, uh, just getting to this issue. And so with that, now we have to keep pushing and advocating getting VAWA passed. And so I have an opportunity right now where it's been good and bad. I'm serving on the women's agenda for the Women's March on the Ending Violence Against Women Policy Committee. And even just being on that committee and just voicing like, hey, don't forget indigenous people. Don't forget indigenous people. I feel like that's, it's annoying to do because we're still here, but and like our, our numbers matter too. And I, I don't want to paint it as like the violence happening to us is, is worse than yours or, or whatever. It's, it's about recognizing and, and acknowledging that long history of violence that indigenous people have been facing. And so I'm happy to say that I finally like got my voice heard and uh, Savannah's act and pushing that through and the policies under that is incorporated under that policy committee. So we're gonna be announcing that and um, advocating for that coming next week when I go back to DC for the Indigenous Peoples March and the Women's March. Um, but I wanted to make sure that there was specific wording, especially in VAWA, SDVCJ, and Savannah's act that got put on that policy ask for this women's agenda. Um, but it, it, takes, it takes efforts like that where we need to show up, we need to be persistent, and we need to keep talking about this. And I'm sure that they were annoyed by me keep saying, hey, what about indigenous people? Like, come on, in include us. But those are some of the solutions right now, but you know, every year we're having to keep talking about this, keep lobbying on the hill, and keep demanding that you know, we need to be protected. And another thing that we can be asking for too is um, there's an issue with tribal protection orders. The fact that state law enforcement won't enforce them because they look different than a state um, protection order. Um, and so that's leaving our women and, and our relatives you know, at risk for more violence. Um, and so that is something that we can be speaking out on. So us meeting here like we are now, this is just another stepping stone in, in elevating this issue to the limelight. And when you go home tonight, please you know, spread this message, talk to other people, and, and hopefully this is something that we can continue to happen pretty often because um, this conversation needs to, to go beyond just tonight. And that was Jordan Marie Daniel from the Lakota Nation speaking on solutions at the recently held Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's and Girls panel discussion, The Epidemic, The Stories and Solutions, held at the Eastside Cafe in Los Angeles, California, this past January 12th of 2019. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. When I search the world, I will find you soon. Children 
frozen memories rain an ocean of tears I can't stop this screaming my life is unclear I still hear her voice and her laughter is so clear I pray she is safe I pray she is near The song Khadija by Tracy Lee Nelson here on American Indian Airwaves Coyote Radio. In the final segment of today's show, co-host and executive producer Marcus Lopez from the Chumash Nation speaks with longtime Coyote Radio consultant, professor, and activist Dr. Fabiana Hirsch as part of our continuing ongoing mini-series regarding the 25th anniversary of the Chiapas Uprising in Mexico. And now, Marcus Lopez with Dr. Fabiana Hirsch, 25 years later, struggles, progress, and the future. Good evening, everybody listening to American Indian Airways. In studio, we have Fabiana Hirsch Dubin, our international correspondent for American Indian Airways Coyote Radio. Fabiana, we are now entering into the, believe it or not, 25 years of the Zapatistas and the event that happened 25 years ago. For our listeners, please go over some of the um, items that we have covered in the last 25 years, or at the same time, you being down there, what have you witnessed? Well, it's quite remarkable, Marcus, that 25 years has gone by since the Zapatistas first had the rebellion back in 1994. And for those of you who remember back that far, or maybe studied a little bit about it, the Zapatistas really were were responding to the North American Free Trade Agreement, also known as NAFTA, which I remember at the time they called the death knell for their communities. In so many ways, things have not only not changed, but mirrored so many of those events that happened early in the early days and are perhaps even amplified under this so-called semi-left, or however they're calling it, new regime of Andres López Obrador, also known as AMLO, who is the current president as of December 2018. So what happened January 1st of this year, 2019, that we've just begun, is that the Zapatistas and the Indigenous National Congress and their governing council recognized and acknowledged that 25 years had gone by. And it's really quite extraordinary what's happened during that time. As you referenced, I did get to spend a certain amount of time in one of the Zapatista communities and also got to go to a variety of different events over time. 
and see for myself, as well as report back to Coyote Radio American Indian Airwaves on what was going on in Chiapas and what was going on in the Zapatista movement in particular. And it's been marked by many things, but especially, and this continues and has grown over time, a process of autonomy. And that's autonomy for indigenous communities, Mayan indigenous communities, that are really ancient in Chiapas as well as today. They are not only existing, but thriving and flowering and building incredible organization with the rest of the indigenous communities throughout Mexico through the structure of the Congreso Nacional Indígena that they had a relationship with early on, but that relationship has really grown and flowered. And we saw that with the campaign this past year of a woman, indigenous woman, you could kind of say running for president, but not in the official capacity of electoral politics, more in an organizational capacity to try to bring the issues and important themes to the forefront of people's minds as they get exposed to a Mexico which tries to pretend it doesn't have any indigenous roots. So we're looking at a movement that is a particular thorn in the side for somebody like Obrador, but past presidents as well, because they're very genuine and they're very transparent and they have not been bought off by anybody over these 25 years, even though there have been many attempts to do so. And so they really speak the truth about what is going on in Mexico, what are these neoliberal projects really about, And they bring visibility to that. They bring transparency to that. And that becomes very problematic when you're talking about neoliberalism and leaders that have consistently lied to their people over these many years. Fabiana, why don't you go over for our listeners some of the highlights in the past 25 years. Here at the American United Airways Coyote Radio, we've reviewed and even interviewed different individuals, scholars, activists, so on and so forth, about the Zapatistas' Army for National Liberation. People saw them, firstly, uh, Fabiana, on the sense of challenging NAFTA, number one, like you indicated, but more so challenging in the sense of as a collective community. And many people at the first hand, as I can recall, well, they thought there were they were an army in which they would challenge militarily the Mexican government, which we that was not their purpose. But the other aspect of it in the show, there were not only that were ideologically not inclined to go with any government or system apologies and excuses, but nor, more so an independent avenue of thought and also of organization that took people by surprise. So if you could... Once you go back into what are people, what would do we cover then, and how the, that, how it, our covering of that make a awareness of what the national liberation of the Zapatistas is all about? Well, you name a few very important points, Marcus. One is that even though the Zapatistas began and their name is literally an army of liberation, they are began as an army, and that particular role ended very quickly on one level. On another level, it couldn't end. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The level on which it ended was 
there was there were huge demonstrations early in 94 that in Mexico City millions of people turning out wanting the zapatistas to, to succeed and they said basically listen folks if you continue to have an armed struggle against the government of Mexico and the army you're going to lose you're going to get decimated we want you to succeed and the only way that can happen is if you change course and we understand why you rose up we understand why you took the towns that you did and as they said, we put masks on in order to be seen because of the invisibility of indigenous people in Mexico and in Chiapas in particular. So they listened to the people, tell them that because I think on some level they also knew, even though they had prepared literally for 10 years from November of 83 up until they became public in 94 to be more or less of an army that would take on the government and army and federal Mexico. However, it became clear they lost some people in that battle, in the number of battles that they have had. And also it became clear that in order to succeed, they had to pick a strategy that people of Mexico could support and that also would be winning, a winning strategy. So they really literally changed course within a very, very short period of time. They have never repeated, unlike some of the what's come out in the press here, for example, in other parts of the world about them, that's not their main character as being an army. They've kept the ability to defend themselves against attack in the communities. However, offensively, they have never repeated that. They have never repeated, and they are committed to not repeat an offensive military strategy. And believe me, with the paramilitary attacks against them over time, which have been repeated where they've lost many people, leadership, people in the communities, um, and it's been deliberately provocative to try to get them to respond in a military fashion so that the army, I mean, there's so many, there's 80,000 troops in Chiapas still to this day even though they try to claim the Zapatistas no longer exist. Well, if they no longer exist, why do they need 80,000 troops? So they, it's convenient to give them that face because then that be, can potentially be a pretext to attack the communities and both paramilitarily, militarily, police, etc., to get out the armed forces essentially against them. And I'm certain that in this current campaign that's going on nationwide, apparently, according to Preeti Brown, who we've talked to a number of times from schools for Chiapas, was telling me yesterday that this campaign is going on on every radio station, every TV station, this anti-Zapatista campaign, which really speaks to the fact that with the current government strategy, which we'll probably talk about one of his main agenda items is to get rid of the Zapatistas. And you're listening to an exclusive interview as part of our mini-series on the 25th anniversary of the Chiapas Uprising with Dr. Fabiana Hirsch. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, County Radio. And now, back to the interview. We're speaking with Fabiana Hirsch Dubin, our international correspondent for Coyote Radio, American Indian Airwaves. 
talking about the Zapatistas Army for National Liberation, the 25 years, the anniversary celebration of a Zapatistas uprising. Fabiana, you, you first of all indicated the first view, you, if you want to say, the introduction of the rebellion in order to, to challenge NAFTA. And they had a different remarks as why they're, why they were challenging NAFTA. And could you go over some of those points for us, for the audience? Well, it's very relevant because on one level it's history, on one level it's the present. Because the neoliberal projects that they were describing in back in 94 and saying it would be the death knell for their communities continues to be the same. Perhaps what's different is that we're talking about mega projects, huge, major undertakings that are designed in the name of so-called progress to really wipe out indigenous lands and people's resources, all the ways that indigenous peoples in Mexico have lived for thousands of years. And I'll give you a couple of examples. In Chiapas, they were trying, this is more historical, but I don't think it's ever been completely eliminated from the agenda. There's been a desire to build a highway from San Cristobal, which is up in the mountains and is a main tourist attraction, all the way to Palenque, the ruins in Chiapas. And with that highway, to make it easier for people to get to the ruins, because right now they have to take a pretty circuitous route um, up through mountains and difficult terrain, that would mean that it would be much, much easier to promote what they call ecotourism and ways to see, as the Zapatistas used to call it, you know, native people in their own habitat, kind of, to put it in a really crude way. But essentially, people would say, well, they really want us out of our communities and selling trinkets on the road so that we can be appealing to tourists who come in their four-wheel drive vehicles and go through our rivers and destroy our sacred lands and... That was one of the projects for Chiapas. One of the projects now that's underway and being led, by the way, by a U.S.-based company in San Diego, Sempra Energy, is to build a really devastating, and this has been going on for several years now, a pipeline in Sonora that's supposed to provide natural gas for folks all the way from Arizona to some of the central states of Mexico. Fabiana, within this, also came up with the, uh, the NAFTA was to benefit Canada, United States, and Mexico. And they laid it out, and they, they uh, articulated, and correct me if I'm wrong, they articulated the sense, uh, the sense of neoliberalism cannot be agenda for the Mexican population, particularly the indigenous population, particularly the communities of Chiapas and the Mayan um, communities, Number one. Second of all, the establishment of their own uh, autonomous regions that uh, they indicated that they will be building in the collective sense, challenging the status quo, and they and they outlined because of NAFTA, because of the wealth of capital flowing out of Mexico and not helping the Mexican population, they in turn demanded to the world not only the attention of indigenous peoples, 
but yet at the same time, a different strategy needs to take hold within the country of Mexico. Could you talk about a little bit about where did the autonomous uh, communities come from? When did they come from? Was it in challenge to NAFTA? And if so, how so? I think the whole existence of the Zapatistas and their autonomous project is a challenge to neoliberalism. And the way that that happens is both externally and internally. Externally in the sense that they don't rely on the normal day-to-day consumer market that most Mexicans have to be beholden to because they grow their own food, they do many things to sustain themselves and to nourish themselves and their own weaving projects, their own cooperatives. And this is something that's been building over time, that aspect, internally in the sense of developing their own communities, plural, possibilities and knowledge of how to develop themselves in the sense of education, whatever businesses that they've created that are more of a cooperative nature, but they've also been able to sell, for example, in the town of San Cristobal, there's like a shop that has boots and leather goods that are made in Oventique, which is one of the Zapatista main cultural educational centers. The people who work for these cooperatives don't get any money. They do it on a rotating basis, and they do it basically along with their regular work, which is keeping up their own milpas, their cornfields, and their their own families' existence and their own community's existence at the same time as helping to build an infrastructure. So they've created the capacity through their education system, through their cultural commitments, through the whole variety of aspects of life that have been developed within the communities where I got to have the honor of spending some time in the course of working with educators about an hour outside of San Cristobal, there really is a dedication to their own internal development as communities, but it happens within very strict guidelines of what Mayan peoples have traditionally done in the past from medicine, the use of traditional medicine, as well as more modern medicines that are needed and ways of dealing with health in the community. So they're really taking on every single task and by creating their own ability to sustain themselves. And they've even at times helped others outside of the communities like the Central Americans, for example, who are forced out of their homes and pass through their territories, they help to sustain them while they go through Zapatista territory. So there's a remarkable ability to also donate, for example, Zapatista corn or Zapatista coffee to help others. And this comes from being able to produce and being able to sustain themselves on a pretty high level. And this has been just developed over time. Now, um, Fabiana, the Zapatistas say that you are now in Zapatista's territory when they came into their autonomous regions. Here the people rule and the government obeys. What does that mean? Well, try to imagine (laughs) the exact opposite of what goes on here, or really what goes on in the rest of Mexico. 
in terms of the official government, as they call it, or they often refer to it as the bad government, el mal gobierno, because they say bad in the sense of the a government that's not in any way committed to the people. So for them, the highest form of government is one that listens to the people. And this is carried out in very in a meticulous way because they have these council meetings where everybody participates. And if they have a proposal that is rejected through many hours of conversation, then they have to deal with that. They don't just by fiat say, well, I'm glad we had that conversation and now we're going to do what we want anyway, which is we're so used to that in our context where Oftentimes, you know, you're said to be part of a democratic process or somehow participate in something that really affects your future, whether it's a meeting at a radio station or a meeting at a at a school or somehow that you're going to really affect change by participating. And in this context, when you're in Zapatista territory, they mean what they say. You are in a very different environment and what the communities are the ones who are in control. The moment of silence is over. And that was Marcus Lopez interviewing Dr. Fabiana Hirsch on the 25th anniversary of the Chiapas Uprising, part one of a two-part interview. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves County Radio. A special thank you to our guests for the hour, Anita Locasi, Jordan Daniels, and Dr. Fabiana Hirsch. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Tracy Lee Nelson, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves County Radio is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. Blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains In a rhythm of resistance We still fight for our lives In this war that never ended We've outdrawn your lives Let our actions speak against our fears Try not to become what we've endured Wearing our souls on a thread The moment of silence is over